The year is flying by. It's February 24. We hit March. And that means that Impact 2019 is on its way. And on the 17th, what did I say? You're all laughing. Oh, did I, say, I, I get, sometimes I say things wrong up here and you guys laugh at me. I thought maybe I said something wrong here. Just checking. <laughs> Impact 2019 is, is on its way. And uh, on March 17, at 5 o'clock, on Sunday is when registrations open. And so uh, keep a look out for that. Keep an eye out for that. Spread the word. There's two wonderful promotional videos by our keynote speakers. Scott Ardavanis is returning. Mike Abendroth will be here for the first time on a wonderful theme on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And so we look forward to that. And before that, we come now to yet another psalm. And this morning we change gears just a little. I give you fair warning. We look at a psalm that truly is God's assessment of mankind. Each of the other psalms have primarily been man looking up to God. Yet here in this morning's psalm, we'll see God looking down upon man. And into the very core of humanity, the very core of the nature of man, I've made mention in recent weeks about the need to live as a joyful worshipper. And for that to happen, there needs to be passion and affection. And for those things to happen, there needs to be knowledge. For all passion and affection for God and true praise of God is anchored upon having a deep knowledge of God. And that's where sound doctrine comes in. And sound doctrine is not something to be scared of. It's something to run toward. It's something to embrace. It's been well said that by Dr. Owen Strand that, quote, sound doctrine will not just get you through tomorrow, it will get you through the next eight decades, end quote. And so this morning, somewhat paradoxically, in order to advance on the journey of our knowledge of God and truly knowing God, His ways, His will, His purposes, His sovereignty over all things, we need to understand the plight of man, the state of man. It may sound strange, but in order to deepen our knowledge of God, we need to grasp man. Someone somewhat paradoxically. And when we talk about the state of man, it is the word anthropology which we use to describe the study of the condition of man. Anthropos is the Greek word for man or humanity. And where we get ology is from the Greek word logia, meaning a collection of words, specifically, interestingly enough, a collection of divine words to form a study about man. So anthropology refers to the study of the state of man. And in order for us to be grasping, as I've said, who God is, we need to know who we are and why we exist. After all, David himself said the same thing. He had the same thought and desire in Psalm 8.4. He said, what is man? that you, God, are mindful of him. And so when we study who man is and ask that same question, what is man? 
We see very quickly in that study how it impacts our relationship to God and deepens our knowledge of God. And as we've gone through these Psalms in the summer and we've spoken about the need for praise and the need for passion and the need for joy. We've also made mention that we need knowledge. And so. We're going to do a little bit of that today. As believers, we know that we were created by God. As believers, we reject the idea of atheistic evolution or even Eastern mystic concepts like reincarnation and the like. We know that we were created imago Dei, that is in the image of God. And unlike animals, we have had, according to Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11, eternity placed into our hearts. Unlike animals or trees or the sun or the moon, we can exercise faith. We have a soul that is facing eternity, either with God in the peace of heaven or separated from Him in the agonies of hell. And so a study of who man is 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 imperative to know who God is and why He made us and why we exist. And so with all that said, I want to turn your attention this morning to Psalm 53. And so I invite you to turn with me there and we'll read that together. Psalm 53. For the choir director, according to Mahalath, a mascal of David. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have committed abominable injustice. There is no one who does good. God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who understands. If there is anyone who seeks after God, every one of them has turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Verse 4. Have the workers of wickedness no knowledge? Who eat up my people as though they ate bread and have not called upon God? There they were in great fear where no fear had been. For God scattered the bones of him who encamped against you. You put them to shame because God has rejected them. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when God restores his captive people. Let Jacob Rejoice, let Israel be glad. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now with hearts, Lord, that we want to be attentive and minds that we want to be free from distraction. We want to sit under the authority of your word. And what we will see here, Lord, flies in the face of our own pride, of our own sinfulness. Lord, help us. To all sit under your word. Because when your word speaks, you speak. Humble us. Make us and break us. So that we would give you great glory. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, A man by the name of Dan Corridor. He's the president of a company called Strategic 
CFO. It's a company that develops financial leadership and provides consulting to businesses in areas of accounting, finances and operations. And on their website that I read this week, I read a little bit about Dan's career and his take on things. And he wrote, quote, in my career, I've dealt with audits and auditors for companies as large as multi-billion in revenue with international operations. And I've dealt with companies as small as 15 million in revenue. I've also dealt with auditors from each of the big four, as well as from local CPA firms. In 28 years working experience, I've been exposed to a variety of situations where financial audits and auditors, with financial audits and auditors. And in those 28 years, the big change in audits and auditors came in the years following the Enron debacle. And if you don't know anything about the Enron debacle, it was a 2001 financial disaster of, of an energy company. But he continues on. The public markets, the SEC, IRS and Congress had to shift dramatically because of what had happened at Enron. The Enron experience brought a landslide of changes to accounting, audits and auditors. Pre-Enron, the audit process was much easier and less regulated. However, today the audit process is fairly complex. Furthermore, Dan says, auditors risk their careers every time they go through an audit. And it's truly a regulated process. Their heads are on the line. If they make a mistake in the audit or if they do not follow the audit guidelines, they risk being sued, losing their job or even going to jail due to negligence or even large mistakes, end quote. The seriousness of audits in the financial sector and other sectors is incredibly important. And what Dan is saying there, that is if the auditor gets it wrong, not by, by not following the guidelines, or if they make mistakes, there will be serious trouble. And that occurs because of error. Error in the audit. And the reason there is error in the audit is because of man's infallibility. Fallibility. His imperfections. Yet in Psalm 53, what we've just read is God's audit. Who is infallible and without error. There is no error in God's audit. There is no mistake in God's assessment. And in Psalm 53, we see mankind explained, audited, assessed, exposed in an unredeemed state. Every person in the entire world prior to the grace of God being poured out upon them is in this state. This is God's audit. And why do we need to grasp this? Because when it comes to the grace of God and the character of God, you will see that it all begins here. I want to humbly submit to you that you will not ever truly grasp the magnitude with which it must be grasped, the immensity of the grace of God until you have grasped the immensity of the fallen state of humanity. We are exhorted in Scripture to be always growing in grace and what? Knowledge. The message this morning will be somewhat part sermon, part lecture, let's call it a lumen, if you will. And it's important in preaching that preaching is not only passionate and persuasive, but also educational. I have three simple 
headings for you that serve to break down this psalm, break down the flow of thought of this psalm and analyze, if you will, the data of God's order. I want you to see first, and this will be where we will spend the bulk of our time, because I want to show you that in these first three verses is where it's picked up in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul takes. So we'll spend the bulk of our time looking at the first point, and that is a total corruption. A total corruption. Now let's place this psalm in its context for a moment. Psalm 53 is almost a word-for-word repeat of Psalm 14. The difference between the two is their audience. Psalm 14 is directed toward the foolishness of Israel herself. And Psalm 53 is David penning these words as enemies surround Israel and he witnesses firsthand the corruption of mankind and their evil actions encircling him and the nation. That's the context. Psalm 14, directed towards the foolishness of Israel herself. Psalm 53, directed towards the evil that is being surrounded the nation of Israel. And this audit at the evaluating eyes of an omniscient God, meaning an all-knowing God, flies in the face of most, if not all, secular humanism of our day that says man is good. 18th century philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau romanticized that notion with the thesis that man was naturally good. And Jean-Jacques' work influenced Freud and then Karl Marx. But long before Jean-Jacques Rousseau was, there was a man by the name of Pelagius born in Britain about 354 AD. He became a monk and then journeyed to Rome, having become a monk. And due to his zealous asceticism, asceticism being this severe treatment of the body, of self-discipline and strict avoidance of any form of indulgence, because of that, he began to garner this large following and they observed this quote-unquote incredibly pious man. Augustine, who you may have read, was born the very same year Pelagius was. God has a sense of humor. And so the two grew up in the same generation, but the two would hold to a very different view of man, the nature of man. Pelagius held the view that mankind, quote, has a natural capacity to reject evil and seek God that Christ's admonition, be ye perfect, presupposes this capacity. And Pelagius believed that as a result of the fall, man had not been entirely corrupted, and that man could, in and of his own free will, have the ability to do things that please God and then be saved. And so, as a result, he denied what is commonly referred to as original, as the Roman Catholic Church calls it, or inherit sin. Which means that as a result of Adam's sin, all the offspring of Adam inherited a sinful nature. Now that's a good way of understanding it, yet the trouble is with that view, inherit sin view, is that it lends itself to some 
taking the view that Adam's sin is passed on, but not Adam's guilt. And so the idea of simply thinking of the fall as inherited sin doesn't go deep enough. The Pelagius view, or even the semi-Pelagius view, which forms much of today's belief among believers of the nature of man, is deficient in its diagnosis. Because the more man is viewed as having something in and of himself to do good and to contribute to his own salvation, we'll see this morning that the less of God's grace is magnified. And that is where the doctrine of what is known as federal headship comes in. Federal headship. And what that means is that both the corruption of Adam's sin nature is inherited and the guilt of Adam's sin is imputed to us, credited to us. Before coming to Christ, we are in an unredeemed state. And Adam is our representative. Adam is our representative head before we're coming, before coming to Christ. We are, before coming to Christ, we're not in Christ, we're in Adam. And because of that, we inherit what our representative possesses and we are imputed with credited with what our representative possesses. And Adam possesses both a sinful nature and the guilt of sin. Both the pollution and the penalty are ours. But when the grace of God appears, bringing salvation, Titus 2.11 tells us, then we are united with Christ and then He becomes our representative. We're severed from Adam, united with Christ. Christ becomes our representative. His work on the cross atones for our sin, so the guilt is gone. And the work of the Spirit transforms us and transforms our our nature, our heart nature from the inside, so we're no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to Jesus. And yet prior to that grace appearing, And bringing salvation and freedom from sin's bondage. We are, according to this psalm and other places in Scripture that we'll look at, we are corrupt. Not good. Not seeking God. And saying in our hearts, verse 1, there is no God. And we see in the opening verses here, the psalmist, he addresses the heart of man. Verse 1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. I'm always struck by the fact that God, in His inspired Word, doesn't say here in verse 1, the fool has thought in his heart. There is no God. But instead, because of the reality that man indeed knows that God exists, foolish humanity has to continually be preaching to themselves, there is no God. Saying to their heart, there is no God, there is no God. All sounds an awful lot like Romans chapter 1, verse 18, does it not? Quote, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. 
in order to suppress something, you need to know it. You cannot suppress that which you do not know. And what are they suppressing? Well, the very next verse in Romans chapter 1 tells us in verse 19, it's through to verse 21, let me read it for you, it says this, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them, for since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are what? Without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their what? And their foolish heart was hardened. What we have here is the doctrine of total inability. Total inability. Which means that so devastating is the effect of sin that it has corrupted all those born of Adam. That is the entire human race. When it says there in verse 2 and 3 of Psalm 53, look there with me, God has looked down from heaven upon all the sons of men, that's the entire re, entirety of humanity, to see if there is anyone who understands, who, if there's anyone who seeks God. Almost, this, the language here is conveying that God is searching as though he, he, He's hoping that He sees someone. But verse 3, every one of them has turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. Not even one. All encompassing. And what that means there in verses 2 and 3 is that sin's corruption is complete and comprehensive. It is all encompassing. Every part of the human is corrupted. The heart, the mind, the will, and the affections have been devastatingly corrupted. And when it says there that there is none who seek after God, it is because that corruption is complete. And it means that there is inability on man's part to please God. And when it says there that God has looked down upon the sons of men, the humanity, he saw none that are good, none who seek God, it is because sin spread to all. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 teaches us that when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin then brought death and death spread to everyone in the world. And so when we think about this kind of corruption, this kind of depravity, we mustn't think of unsaved humanity as being as bad as they could be. We mustn't think of it as though unsaved humanity is always as bad as they could be. That's an important point. But for the restraining grace of God upon my heart and upon your heart, the wickedness of our own heart would make us capable of the most atrocious of actions and the most atrocious of crimes. And so I want to be crystal clear. According to the revelation of Scripture, we must not think of the nature of mankind, humanity, that is who man is on the inside, as something 
that is either good or neutral. Remove that thought far from your mind. That the nature of man is good or that the nature of man is neutral. Mankind is hostile toward God. Actively hostile. Man is unable. Man does not have the, the ability as a result of his nature, get this, to choose God. And I understand that is a controversial view among the pervading semi-Pelagian view that exists today, which says emphatically that at the fall, man was not comprehensively corrupted just a little bit. There's just a little bit left. That, that all you need to do is fan into flame that and then all will be well. They'll be able to do something in order to make themselves right with God. No, no, no. These aren't my words. These are the Bible's words and I'm going to show you. I preach not opinion and the day I do, come see me. This is a controversial view. I understand that. But brothers and sisters, it is God's audit. And in God's orders, audit, those numbers don't stack up. You see, when man audits his own self, there's error in the audit. But in God's audit, man's numbers don't stack up. You see, when God audits man, he sees complete corruption of heart, abominable practices, he tells us there in verse 1, flowing out of that heart. When God audits man, he says there's none who seeks after God. When God audits man, he says there's none who does good. Now, when it talks about doing good, it's not talking in the context of, of giving milk to your neighbor. It's talking about spiritual good. There is no one who does spiritual good. Understand that. The Bible teaches that when we, we, we are without Christ, we are in the flesh. And when we are in the flesh, we are living out our original nature. And that's why in Romans chapter 8, verse 7 and 8, it says this, The mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. Now get this and underline it. For it, for it is not even able to do so. It isn't even able to do so. There is, as a result of complete corruption, there is total inability. That's exactly what David is saying here. He is saying that the fool, i.e. the unregenerate, says in his heart, there is no God. Dr. Barak pointed out in his commentary on this psalm that in the ancient Near East, the time that this psalm was written, there was not what is called um, philosophical atheism, meaning that the idea didn't really exist that there was no God. Everyone acknowledged God or a God, whether the one true and living God or a false God. What David is talking about here in, in verse 1 is not atheism as we know it, but practical atheism, where even though we know God, we don't acknowledge Him as God. Even, even though we truly know there is a God, we don't live as though there is one, because we suppress it, such is the nature of man. As an aside, some of us can live like that at times, can't we? 
As believers, we, we have a practical atheism that we engage in when we live as though there is no God, when we fail to trust Him. When we fail to obey Him and love Him and follow Him, we just, we confess with our mouth. Our lips say one thing, but our hearts are far. That's convicting to think about. And for us, God must be in our hearts and minds. For the unbeliever, even though they with such bravado say there is no God, they are without excuse. Because we just read in Romans, they know there's a God, they just suppress Him. And so, with with the nation and David being encircled and besieged and under siege by evil, evil men, witnessing humanity's first-hand evil upon him and the nation, David pens this psalm as a result. He's saying that God looks down upon humanity and in God's attempt to find one who does good or one who seeks God, he finds none. It's futile. Rather than seeking God, verse 3 tells us, everyone seeks their own. It's so important that we grasp this. It's so important that we comprehend the comprehensiveness of this. Because unless we do, that grace that we sing about, and that grace that we talk about, it's not fully understood. I want to show you that as we go along. We simply can't grasp the immensity of God's grace. And so I want to show you this. So turn with me to Romans chapter 3. I listened to some sermons from a conference in the States a couple of weeks back and one message in particular really struck me and it was on this very passage. I was able to share a portion of this with some men recently in our church and so I draw from that here. Romans chapter 3, we see here in this passage, verse 9 through to 20, we see here the most thorough diagnosis of the nature of man in all of Scripture. Here is biblical anthropology. There's plenty of anthropologies that are espoused, but here's a biblical one. What then, verse 9, are we better than they? Not at all. For we've already been, we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks, that's the entire world. Look what it says there. Are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Verse 13, their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Did you see that in verse 9? All are under sin. That's to say that all are under the effects and the pollution and the corruption of sin. And it's here in these verses that we see all three major components of what constitutes humanity. What constitutes mankind being explained. 
mind, affection, and will. Now, you've heard me talk about those before, but they've been primarily from the believer's perspective, where we need to increase our knowledge of Him, which ignites our our affections for Him and then drives our will to want to live for Him. But here is a diagnosis of the corrupting effects of sin upon the nature of mankind, unregenerate mankind. You see, most are okay with saying that our minds and our heart have been impacted by the fall, but not our wills. Why would that be the case? Well, I want to show you. I want to show you, in fact, that all three components of human nature has been completely corrupted. These words here in verses 9 through 12, initially, they are allusions and direct quotations to Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. Look at the first half of verse 11 for a moment. It says, there is none who understands. That's our minds. As a result of the fall, the human mind has been impacted in such a way that in regard to spiritual matters, there is simply no one who gets it. There is no one who understands. All are darkened. All are without understanding. Futile in mind. Hostile in mind. Listen carefully to what 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says. A natural man, that is an unregenerate man, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. It's been rightly pointed out that cannot is a term of ability. May is a term of permission. Cannot is a term of ability. Unregenerate man simply cannot understand them. That's the mind. Look at the second part of verse 11. There is none who seeks for God. This is our heart or our affections. This is a rebellious heart that is void of love for God or the things of God. And sometimes we can struggle to accept this language here. It's all too easy to read, but it's, 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 it's very hard to accept. Because we, simp- we, we see people who are searching for God. I mean, I mean many of you will know, people in your life, I trust, who, who, you, who they seem to be searching for God. Sometimes you'll be involved in an evangelistic encounter and, and they'll be like, man, they seem to be really searching for God. And that may, be, that may be the case if indeed the Father is drawing them. Jesus said, no one will come to me unless the Father draws him. That may well be the case, the evidence that you're looking at. We may see people seemingly searching for God, but God sees people running from God. That's what God sees. Only when God begins to draw those to himself do we see any tangible evidence, but until then it's all defiance by man toward God. And so we've seen the mind corrupted, the heart corrupted, and now I want to show you that the will is corrupted too. This is so incredibly important to understand that the will is just as comprehensively corrupted as the heart and the mind. 
Look at verse 12. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. All have turned aside. That's the will. I want to say again that it is so incredibly important to grasp this fact that man's will has been entirely corrupted by the fall. Why is it so important? Because if there is one great idol that is carried around among people and even the people of God, like some big Trojan horse, it is the concept and the notion of free will. I want to explain something at this point. For us to deepen our understanding of God and answer the question, who, who, who is mankind and why do we exist? There must be proper defining of terms. Do not seek to refute that which you do not properly understand. I think many use the term free will and they know not what they say. Humanist secular thought injected a humanist free will into the world. And I think what happens when many people use the term free will, they're using that and they'll say, look at my life. I'm not a robot. I can choose. I choose a white car, a blue shirt. I choose to turn left. I choose to eat Indian instead of Thai and so on and so forth. And we take that and then we, we apply that to spiritual matters and call that freedom of the will. And we do so unaware of what the Bible teaches regarding the complete and utter corruption of man. And we do so unaware of the results of God's audit of man. Because the crucial aspect regarding any talk of the will is that we will always choose according to our strongest desire. The choices we make are always made from inclination, from what we are inclined, what we desire. And so because of that, our choices are always driven by our disposition. We must think of free will in this way. Surely, sure, we've been given the freedom to choose. Left, right, hot, cold, red, blue, Indian or Thai food. Yet when it comes to spiritual matters, humanity has been so corrupted by the fall, there is no ability to exercise a free will to do anything to please God in a spiritual sense or to make oneself right with God. Because our entire person is corrupted by sin. Our mind, our heart, and our will. I believe it was Charles Spurgeon who said, I've heard a lot about Mr. Free Will, but I've never met him. I want you to see now the audit gets worse. 
Look at verses 13 through 18 of Romans chapter 3. It's here now that Paul uses metaphors of the human body. Why does he use metaphors here, verses 12 through to 18, of the human body? He's using metaphors to illustrate the complete corruption of the entire person. Their throat is an open grave. Think about a grave for a moment. A grave is meant to be sealed. Why? Probably because so no one comes and steals the body or that which may be laid with the body. But another reason the grave needs to be sealed is so it doesn't stink. Their throat is an open grave. Everything about them is just repugnant. It's it's disgusting. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of apps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Now, their feet are swift to shed blood. Well, we can think of that as like, well, I'm I'm not running around going to murder someone and chop their head off. I'm not running around going to stab someone. But you know what Jesus said? If you're angry with someone, you've done it. Destruction and misery are their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. They haven't known peace with God. They haven't truly known peace with one another. And look... Their eyes are all wrong. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The audit just got worse. Have you ever wondered why people reject God? Have you ever wondered why people refuse to listen to the gospel? Have you ever wondered why people slander you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? Why people the world over persecute the believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? Why they mock and malign the Christian faith? It is because of this. It is because they are so polluted and corrupted by sin. Again, human nature is not passive or neutral. It is evil. I mean, Jesus said to their own disciples, if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to men. And this is really here. This is what makes Christianity stand alone. We understand a true understanding of the nature of man. But I want you to understand deeper, on a deeper level, the ramifications of the fall upon the heart, the mind, and the will. And so back to Psalm 53 now. And that's what David is doing here again. He's, he's observing firsthand the wickedness of man. He's assessing their corruption. He, he's giving us God's order of humanity. And then after doing that, David then moves to the outcome of such depravity by showing us, very quickly we'll see it, in verses 4 and 5, a total collapse. So after showing a, a, a total corruption, here's now a total collapse in verses 4 and 5. Have the workers of wickedness no knowledge? Who eat up my people as though they ate bread, have not called upon God? We'll simply touch on this, but I want you to see this. In verse 5, they were in great fear where no fear had been. It's here that David is showing us the end of the foolish sinner. In verse 4, those who have not called upon God, that's unbelievers. They have no knowledge. David's saying, do they really think that as they devour the people of God, as they live out their nature hostile towards the truth of God, do they really think that there'll be no consequence? They were in great fear where they had 
where no fear had been, for God scattered the bones of him who had compassed against you, had camped against you. You put them to shame because God had rejected them. There is this overconfidence and utter ignorance that will be turned into terror and full awareness when the coming judgment of God falls upon mankind. When we look at the world around us, the humanity that we we live amongst, we see they live as though there is no God, but one day soon God will come and render judgment. And the fool who says in his heart the words of suppression of truth, there is no God, will wish he listened to the words of Jesus who said the wise man built his house on the rock. And when the floods came and the winds came, Jesus talking there about the judgment of God, his house stood. When they beat it heavily against that house, and why did they stand? Because they had been built upon the rock of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This here in verses 4 through 5 is a fearful collapse that David is predicting. Because the wise man builds on the rock and the foolish man builds on the sand. And when judgment comes, there'll be a total collapse. And I want to say to you here that if you sit here having not yet built your life handed over your life to the rock, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who went to the cross and laid down his life and took all the penalty and punishment that was due you for your sin and who rose again on the third day, that if you have not put your faith in him and laid down your life and laid, it, laid down at his feet and trusted in him by faith and faith alone, then there is a total collapse that is coming upon you. But you must come to Christ and build upon the rock. David's saying here, do you know what will occur? Do you know what will occur then when God returns to judge the wicked? He will separate the blessed man and the wicked man that was written about in Psalm 1. He'll separate the sheep from the goats. The wicked will perish. For they will not stand in the judgment Psalm 1, and there will be, and it's the last point, there will then be a total culmination. When God returns to render final judgment, when the wicked are done away with into the agonies of hell, there will be, David then ends this entire psalm in verse 6 with a total culmination. He says, oh, that the salvation would come out of Zion when God restores his captive people. Let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. You see, we've seen the corruption of man. We've seen the certain collapse that will fall upon unbelieving man. And now here is the culmination of all things for the one who has received grace from God. The coming kingdom. David is rejoicing now that the great deliverer, deliverer, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, will come and establish his kingdom. He'll restore Israel. He'll restore the redeemed people of God from every tribe and nation and tongue we know. And so, that's Psalm 53. Why the emphasis? Why the emphasis in the complete and utter corruption of man? 
It is because once you come to terms with the reality that mankind's fallen state is not one where there is a flicker of ability to do things that please God and make them stand forgiven in God's sight. Once you understand that man is totally unable, then all you have left is grace. That's all you have left. Amazing grace. To the wind. With the idea that puny man has any ability to make himself right with holy God. Where where is the joy in such a thing? Heavy words. Total inability, utter depravity. Where is the joy in all this? Well, the answer is this. The more we understand just how totally corrupt man is, the more we treasure the glories of the gospel. It was Dr. R.C. Sproul who used the wonderful illustration that salvation is not as though man is simply treading water in the ocean and God comes by and throws him a, uh, a life circle thing. That was a really bad life point. It's not as though man is treading water and God just throws him a life boy. No, no. Salvation is that man is at the bottom of the ocean, lying there dead on the floor of the ocean. And God rescues us from that state. That's grace. That is grace. When we grasp this, And the trouble with this is that man always wants to determine and see in the text how it is that he can be made right with God. Man doesn't like to hear these things. And when we grasp these things, there is no but, 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 but only but God who made us alive together with Christ. Glory to God. His grace is magnified when man is made little of and we understand the results of God's order. Let's pray. Father, we come before you humbled. Humbled by your grace. Father, forgive us for our sin. Lord, we have been exposed to your audit of heart, of mind, of will. And Lord, we're so humble that we would be the recipients of your grace. That we weren't just simply at the top of the water waving with some ability to have you throw us a life boy. We're at the bottom of the ocean floor done with. And you came and rescued us. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a complete and utter wretch like me. Would you bless the preaching of your word? In Jesus' name, amen.